read a blog post the other day about a book published in 1964. The book's called The Three Christ of Ypsilanti. The book was based on a psychiatric case study by Dr. Milton Rokich, who was studying mental illness. Rokic was, was treating three patients at a psychiatric facility in Ypsilanti, Michigan. These patients, named Leon, Clyde, and Joseph, all suffered from delusions of grandeur, which is a common disorder. However, each of these three men believed that they were actually Jesus Christ. You've heard of the Messiah complex. Well, these three men took that to another level. The doctor worked hard at the task of introducing them to reality, but it was difficult to break through. In his book, he tells of, of trying to convince these men that they really weren't God in the flesh. For several years, he had these three guys live together. They ate all their meals together. They, they slept in the same room together. Every afternoon, they had group therapy sessions together. Dr. Rokich hoped that by spending time with others who thought they too were God would help reality set in. His approach, you might imagine, led to some interesting conversations. One of the men would say, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know, Rokich would ask. Well, God told me, the patient would invariably answer. But just then, another of the three men would interject, I never told you any such thing. At once the, and once the third got into the act, there was complete chaos. Once the disagreements became sharp and angry, each Christ would merely assume that the other two were simply patients in a mental hospital, and he, on the other hand, was the genuine article. Sadly, Rokich was not successful in his attempt to convince these men that they were not God. They were trapped in this upside-down reality where they thought they were the center of the universe. They really believed that life was all about them. The foundation of reality is that there is one God, and you're not him. The foundation of that reality, and once that is established, a choice must be made. And here's the choice. I know that there is the Lord God, the master of all creation. And I also know that there's the God of me, the pretender on the throne. Now, which one am I going to serve? Over the series that we've been doing, God's at War, uh, we've spent some time talking about how there is a God of all creation, and we see evidence of him all around. Even if you're at a place in your life where you would deny the existence of God and his authority and his even existence. The Bible tells us, and I believe this to be true, that there's something inside of you, even though you're denying it, that tells you that God is real, that something had to create this. It did not come from nothing. And the whole premise of this series, God's at War, is there's a Lord God of all creation, but there's also a world that we live in with these gods, with these things that are fighting for control of our heart that would rather have us worship them than the Lord God of all creation. And so as we've gone through the series, we've examined some of these gods, some of the gods that I believe maybe you, and I know certainly I am wrestling with. We go into these different temples, 
where there are some different gods located. And I don't know which temple or which temples maybe you were worshiping at, but I believe we come around this altar and we worship in these temples and we worship these gods. They start off as something good, maybe a gift from God, but they suddenly are elevated to this place where we're worshiping them. I think we start off, we started off talking about the temple of power and how we come into this temple of power and we have these gods, these gods of, of, of money, of success and achievement, these, these gods of our future plans. And they go from being good things, things that are important in life, things that are necessary in life, from being tools that we use to being things that we've put on the throne of our heart. And they've become the things that we worship instead of the gifts from God. Maybe that's a temple you've been worshiping in. Maybe it's the temple of pleasure. Maybe that's the temple you've been worshiping in. You know where the gods of entertainment the gods of sexual pleasure, gods of fun, where these gods are located. The gods where I'm looking for something to, to comfort me and to fill me from the inside. Maybe I've got this void in my life. I just know something's missing. And I have a feeling there are a lot of us in the room who can relate to that. There's something that's been missing and you know it. And you've tried to fill it with maybe drugs and alcohol, maybe relationships, maybe food. And you've tried to fill these things in your, this void in your life with these gods that have gone from just being tools to use in your life and things that God designed for pleasure and good to being things that we have put as a form of worship. Or maybe like last week, we went into the temple of love. And in this temple, we, we find the gods of romance, gods of relationships and family. And I wonder how many of us have, have sought to fill this void in our life with these relationships to say, I need, I need a man or a woman to come in and fill this void in my life. I need my kids to fill this void in my life. I need my best friend to come and fill this void in my life. And, and they've gone from being good things and support systems in our life to being gods that we worship. I wonder if that describes you. Today, Today we're going to come into, we're, going to, we're actually going to stay in this temple of love. And we're going to study one more God. And today we're going to focus on one God. This God, I believe if we're honest with ourselves and if we look at the whole of Scripture, we see that this one God is what all the other gods point to. If we are looking to the temple of power and money and achievement and success or the temple of pleasure for, for entertainment and, and sexual desire and things like that and fun, or if we're in the temple of love with relationships and romance and, and those things, no matter what God it is, it all comes back to this one God. It's called the God of me. The God of me. And I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, when we stop and think, I have removed the Lord God from the throne of my heart and my life's desires, my goal, everything I do is all about the God of me, pleasing myself, filling a void, figuring out how I can be happy. I wonder if that describes you today as we jump into this message, into this topic. I wonder if you can answer how you would answer the question, am I going to be in control of my life or am I ready to let the Lord God be in control? To fully understand the struggle, I want to take us back to the beginning. 
I want to take us back to in the book of Genesis, the very beginning story of Adam and Eve in chapter 3. You see, to understand just how strong of a pull the God of me is in my life and in your life, I think we need to take a look at where it all got started. So if you'll look in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 with me, let's read this really quick. It says, Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, this is what he goes to Eve and says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees of the garden. We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not Certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And here we are, the very first time that the idea was planted in a man's heart. It was put before men and women right here when Satan says, you don't need God. You're your own God. You're smart enough. You can do it on your own. You don't need a God. You have intelligence, you have education, you have money and power and means, you have physical ability. You can do this on your own. You don't need God. And from that moment on, that has been the primary struggle with man. That has been the root of sin. All of our sin and all of our idolatry comes back to this one concept right here that says, am I going to be my own God? Or am I going to follow the Lord God? The Bible goes on to describe the struggle and help us understand it. You see, God gave us free will when he created us. And you know that to be true. You make your own decisions, your own choices. He gave us the ability to choose which God would sit on the throne of our heart. God didn't force us to follow him or to love him. He gives us the opportunity to choose. God knew the answer all along. He knew we would struggle in this way. He knew our hearts were selfish and self-serving. He knew that we would all become convinced that we would know what's best for us and we would have our own desires that were the best things that would make us happy and the things that we would want to fulfill. He knew that we would try to find our own way to our own heaven. Who needs God and who needs his heaven when we can make our own way and make our own heaven? And he knew that was going to be a struggle that each human being would live with. He knew that we wouldn't see on our own a need for his salvation and his heaven, and that those were really the only ones that existed. He knew all this. That's why he sent Jesus. And this is at the heart. Last week I shared with you the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who was at the well. And Jesus, being tired from a journey, he was heading up to Galilee with his disciples. The disciples had gone to town to find food. Remember the story? And Jesus sits down at the well. The Samaritan woman comes up. 
for a lot of reasons. I shouldn't have been talking in the first place. But Jesus says, will you get me some water? And she looked at him like, I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for water? And that's when Jesus stops and looks at her and says, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you'd be asking me for water. What? what you don't, you're asking me. to draw, You don't have anything to draw water with, is what she says back to him. She doesn't get it. She, she doesn't understand that Jesus is looking in past the cup of water that would quench a temporary thirst. He's looking into her soul. He's looking into her heart, and he's seeing something. He's saying, you know what? You have water here, and you're trying to fill your life. You have this void that you're trying to fill in your life, and nothing you're trying to fill it with is satisfying, is it? You've been married many times. You're trying to find a man to fill this void for you, and it just doesn't work. You're trying to find relationships that will fill this void for you. And it just doesn't work. And that's when Jesus says these words in John 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered, he's speaking to the woman, everyone who drinks this water from the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What Jesus is saying is, you think you know best. You think you have all the answers. You think that you're just as qualified as God to be your own God. But you're not God. You're trying to fill this empty void in your life with answers, with proof, with with love and relationships, with, with drugs and alcohol, with money and power and success, with pleasure and entertainment and fun. But guess what? I know the truth. You're still empty inside, aren't you? That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. I see right through the facade. I see right through this front you're putting up that says, I'm God and I can do this on my own and I don't need anyone else and I have all the answers. And God says, I know the truth. You're still empty. Why? Because you're trying to fill your things, yourself up, with things that simply are not God. They're good, but they're not God. What Jesus is offering you and what he was offering the woman at the well that day was something that will never leave you feeling empty or thirsty again. If you put the real God on the throne of your heart, you will never feel lost or lonely or empty again. And today... As we wrap this sermon series up, God's at War, I'm asking you to do a careful examination of your own heart. And I'm asking you to ask yourself this question. Which of these gods that we've been talking about over the past few weeks, which of these gods can save you and provide you with eternal hope? What of the gods that you're putting on the throne of your heart, which ones of them have any chance of saving you? Which of them can provide you with any kind of eternal hope, not just hope for pleasure today, but eternal hope for the rest of your life and beyond? Can any of them do it? Can this happen With you serving as the Lord and God of your life, can you save yourself? Can you create your own heaven 
Has anyone in here succeeded at that yet? Have you found it yet? Or are you ready to come to a place where you know the only way it's going to ever happen for you is with the Lord God in control of your life? That's a question I want you to ask you. And as we get ready to examine, and I'm going to give you some questions here in a minute that you can use to examine your own heart to see, am I really living as the God of my own life or is the Lord God living on the throne? I want to start off with the story. How many of you have heard of King Nebuchadnezzar? King of Babylon. He, uh, back, in, back in the Old Testament, we read about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a real guy. Nebuchadnezzar was, ran one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen, especially up to that time. Nebuchadnezzar was in control. He had a young man serving him as, as one of his advisors named Daniel. We find the story in the book of Daniel, actually, if you want to read it. We're going to, I'm going to share with you a story from Daniel chapter 4 today. See, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was, a, was a mighty and powerful king. He was in control of everything. He was also known to be pretty evil. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? <laughs> like it when I say that, don't you? <laughs> Remember that story? When he went, threatened, if you don't bow down to my idol, to my image, then I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. This was the kind of guy Nebuchadnezzar was. Well, one day, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, a dream, if you will, and it shakes him up pretty badly. He's not really sure what to make of it. So he calls in his advisors, and he tells them about the dream, but none of them can explain the dream to him. So Nebuchadnezzar finally calls in Daniel and says, Daniel, you're always able to explain these things to me, so I'm going to share the stream with you. I want you to interpret it for me. Daniel says, okay. So he says, okay. In my vision, there was this tree, but it wasn't just any normal tree. This tree was massive. It was so tall that it touched the sky. And it was so wide, the branches reached out so far that you couldn't even see. It touched the horizon on either side. And this, and this tree provided shade and shelter and, and fruit. It fed the birds of the air and the animals under it. And it gave protection to every animal that walked on the ground underneath it. This tree was mighty. It was powerful. But then, says Nebuchadnezzar, I heard this voice. It was a herald from heaven, an angel, if you will. This angel comes down and commands that the tree be chopped down and it's stripped of all of its branches, its fruit, and, and, and its leaves, and its fruit be scattered, to, scattered out. All that's to be left is the stump, but I want you to leave the stump and the root system there. It's going to have a band around it, but it's going to sit out there. And for seven times is what the Bible says. Some people think that means seven years. We're not really 100% sure what the prophecy meant, what the dream meant. But for seven times would pass while this stump sat gathering the dew of the night and and the animals running around it and it being out and exposed to the elements. Daniel, what does this dream mean? Daniel at first was a little, it says he kind of was confused by it, perplexed, I believe is the word you'll see in your scripture. He was perplexed by it. And then he got a little hesitant, like, I don't really want to tell you. And Nebuchadnezzar says, go on, I promise, I won't blame you for it, just tell me what it means. He says, to be honest with you, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I wish this dream were for your enemies, but it's not. It's for you. Here's what the dream means. The tree, the tree that reaches the heavens and far out is you. You're the tree. Your kingdom is so great and so powerful, it's the greatest kingdom in the world. 
But God, the herald that came down and made the proclamation is from God. And he says that you, when the tree is cut down, says that you're going to lose your kingdom. Your power is going to be taken away from you. Everything that you've accomplished is going to be taken away. Not only that, but you're going to go insane. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to have the mind of an animal. And for seven times, you're going to live with the animals. And the dew of the earth is going to fall on you. And, and, and you're going to eat the grass just like the oxen. And you're just going to live out there as one of the animals. And that's where your mind's going to be. And you're going to lose everything. But, but the stump and the root system will still be intact. And that's God's way of telling you that if you will take yourself off the throne and acknowledge that the Lord God of heaven rules, then you'll be restored back to your place. You'll be restored back to your kingdom, and it'll all be given back to you and more. That was the end. So we fast forward 12 months to the day. We fast forward. Nebuchadnezzar's walking around on the roof of, of his palace, looking at all the kingdom, and he says to himself, look at what I've done. Look at my greatness. I did this. I built this kingdom. I'm awesome. Everything is awesome. And he started singing the Lego song. And he looked at it, and it says the words were no further out of his mouth than the prophecy was fulfilled. A voice from heaven said, Nebuchadnezzar, because you think you're the God, you've just sealed your fate, you've lost everything. And you are going to go out and you're going to live with the animals, you're going to lose your mind and have the mind of animals for seven times. And only when you're ready and willing to acknowledge that the Lord God of all creation rules, only then will your kingdom be restored. And that's exactly what happened. Now what you'll find when you read Daniel chapter 4 is it's written by Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling it in the first person. He's giving praise and glory to God. This guy, when you read what he did earlier to people like Shadrach and Meshach and that other guy, and you read about what he did with them, and then you see what happened to Nebuchadnezzar here and then read him writing praise and glory to the God of heaven, you see what a transformation took place in his life, and he was restored back to his kingdom. And it's an awesome thing to read. And so today, what I want to do is I want to ask you this. I want to ask you, are you right now, you may not be Nebuchadnezzar. You may not be ruling this great kingdom that all the world can see. But I'll tell you this, you've been given your own kingdom. You've been given a life. And God's asking, what are you going to do with this life? Are you going to insist on being the Lord and God of your own life? Or are you going to let him have control? Are you going to let him guide you and be the Lord of all you are and all you do and all you think and all you decide? He's asking you that and he's challenging you that. And so I want to give you four questions to ask yourself. You can follow along in your bulletin. We'll go through this fairly quickly. That You can write down four questions you can ask yourself to say, am I living my life right now with the God of me on the throne of my heart? Or am I allowing the Lord God to rule me? The first question I want to ask you is this. What motivates you? 
I think that's an important question. What motivates you? For Nebuchadnezzar, his motivation was to impress others. Uh, in fact, earlier in chapter 3, and I just told you about the, the story of the three men and, and, the, and him building the big 90-foot-tall statue and telling everyone in his kingdom to bow down to it, and he threw those guys in the furnace because they wouldn't. And of course, we know that God rescued them. But what we learn about Nebuchadnezzar from that, he wanted everyone in the world to know that he was king. He wanted everybody in the world to know just how great he was. What motivated him was for others to acknowledge. He wanted everyone everyone to know who he was and how powerful he was and how great he was. That moved him. You know, impressing others, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. These were massive gardens he built for one of his wives who came from Medea, where there were mountains and vegetation. So Nebuchadnezzar constructed this artificial mountain and planted gardens that hung down the sides of the structure. It looked like these gardens were growing in the air, and an ingenious system had been devised to hoist water over 300 feet from the Euphrates River to water these gardens. Man, Nebuchadnezzar was all about making an impact. He wanted to impress people. That was what drove him. That's what motivated him. What about you? What motivates you? What is it as you're thinking about that gets you excited, that would make you happy? Is it about bringing yourself glory? Or is it about bringing God glory? What motivates you? What motivates you in your decisions and the things you do every day? I'm telling you, the answer to that question will tell you what God is sitting on the throne of your heart right now. When we can start saying, what motivates me every day when I wake up is to somehow figure out a way to bring attention and glory to God. It's all about him. It's not about me. When you can learn to do that, then you will know that the Lord God has the place in your life that he deserves. And that's not an easy thing to do. It doesn't happen just by accident. It happens very intentionally with you waking up every day and saying, I intend to bring glory to God today, not to myself. Second question we can need to ask ourselves is this. What is your standard for success? For Nebuchadnezzar, success was all about personal gain. The king's main palace you get this. The king's main palace was 350 yards long. Now today, we might look around and we might see a house that's a really large house and be impressed. Maybe that house, a, a supersized mansion, might be 10 to 12,000 square feet, something like that. And that would be a house. We'd be like, wow, that place is amazing. That place is huge. King Nebuchadnezzar's palace was estimated to be about 630,000 square feet. Try to picture that. King Nebuchadnezzar's standard for success was to have the biggest and most impressive everything. What's your standard for success? I wonder, does your standard for success, when you would be able to declare that I've been successful in what my heart desires, is it about building God's kingdom or building your own kingdom? What is your standard for success? It's an important question to ask. Number three is this. What is your source of power? What is your source of power? Where do you go for help? 
When you need strength, where do you go to find it? See, for Nebuchadnezzar, it was all about self-empowerment. In verse 28, remember he walked out on his pal right before he went insane, right before God took everything from him and drove him away from the kingdom. He's standing on his palace and he's looking out and he says, I did this. Look at me. It was all about his power. He did everything on his own. Guys, I'm telling you, and I've looked at this and I've looked at it in my own heart. If we're really honest, what we call the American dream is all about building our own kingdom. It's all about saying, I can do this on my own. I have the ingenuity and the brains and the intelligence to do whatever I need in life. I don't need anyone else to do it. And what God's saying is, please don't buy that lie. Your source of power cannot come from within. It is only going to come from the Lord God. The fourth question that we need to ask is this. What is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your life? For King Nebuchadnezzar, his purpose was all about personal happiness. Everything he wanted to do was develop, is to create happiness for himself, comfort and satisfaction. Everything he did was motivated, motivated by a desire to be happy and satisfied. Let me ask you this. Have you gotten to a place in your own life where you are so focused on your personal happiness and your own comfort that you give little or no thought to God's calling and purpose in your life to build his kingdom? Did you catch that? Have you gotten to a place in your own life where your own comfort, your own personal happiness, your own retirement savings, whatever you fill in the blank with that, has overcome any desire to ask God, what do you want from me, Lord? What do you want me to do with my life? How can I build your kingdom? When was the last time you went before God and said, Everything that I want, just put aside. God, what do you want from me to build your kingdom? That's what I want to do. That will help you answer the question of who is the Lord of your life? Is it the God of me or is it the Lord God? In the savanna of Africa, especially during the rainy season, there's a beetle that has one passion in life. This beetle has one overwhelming desire. He has one job description. Every day, this beetle gets up out of bed. He yawns and he stretches and scratches his beetle belly. Then he heads out the door and he goes to gather up balls of elephant dung to roll home. You see, it's the family business. All the dung beetles do it. They've always done it, which raises the question, why? Of all the things you could collect, why collect elephant excrement? Scientists confirm that the beetles use dung as a source of food and a place to lay eggs. Apparently, those are great reasons because thousands of beetles show up where elephants have, um, you know, left elephant droppings. And there's a lot of competition. The overachieving dung beetles actually form dung balls and roll them away to bury elsewhere where their dung beetle buddies will not find their collection. It's an entire life dedicated to collecting dung. And the really great dung beetles collect more dung than they could ever use in a lifetime. 
Lesser dung beetles obviously look up to the truly effective collectors with admiration and respect. Why? Because they have more dung than anybody, and we all know that he who has the most dung wins. Seems like a silly way to spend a life, doesn't it? I wonder if we look a little bit like dung beetles in the eyes of God when we insist on being our own gods and running our own lives and chasing after all the dung that this world wants to offer us. You remember back to the very first sermon in the series, I told you about the story of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God, but there was a king on the throne named Ahab, and he had married a wife, a pagan wife, who followed other gods. Her name was Jezebel. And Elijah was received a message from God. God says, go tell Ahab it's not going to rain. I'm going to stop sending rain on the land. I don't know for how long. I haven't decided that yet. But it's not going to rain for a long time on Israel because they've just gotten so terrible. They've gone so far away from me. Elijah goes and tells Ahab. Then Elijah goes into hiding. For three years, he's in hiding. As Ahab and Jezebel hunt down all the prophets of God and try to kill them. In the meantime, they're building these temples to the god Baal. They're setting up Asherah poles, which are, are, are designed to lead people towards, towards a, a form of worship that's so perverted and sexualized and, and worshiping through being with prostitutes. It was a despicable time in Israel's history that they were doing these things. And after three years, God calls Elijah out of hiding and says, I want you to go back to Ahab. And I want you to tell him, I want you to challenge him. Call him out onto this mountain. Call all the prophets of Baal and you're going to go up against them. And so Elijah does and he goes and tells Ahab what's going to happen. And they gather all the prophets of Baal on one side of the mountain and Elijah on the other. And he says the real God is going to send down fire. So each camp is going to call on God to send out, to call on their God, the God, the Baal God or, or the Lord God. And whichever one responds is real. Elijah already knows he's got this one that's in the bag. But before he does this, he turns around and he looks at the people of Israel. And this is what he says to them. It's found in 1 Kings 18, 21. He says, Elijah went for the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. You know how the people responded? People said nothing. You know what? They made a choice. They made a choice. They made a choice because when this question is asked, what God sits on the throne of your heart, no answer is not acceptable. You make an answer. There is a God. It's either going to be the God of me or it's going to be the Lord God of all creation. Whether you answer the question or not, you're answering the question. There was another group of Israelites a little bit earlier in history who were asked and faced with a very similar question. You see, this happened at a time after nations, early in the nation of Israel's history. See, they'd been led out of Egypt by Moses, and they'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies, Joshua takes over his leadership. Joshua leads them into the promised land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, and they begin to establish their nation there, and they have all their tribes set up, and they're starting to really live life there. Joshua comes to the end of his life. He knows the end of days is here. 
We find this final story I'm going to share with you in this series in Joshua 24. But Joshua comes to the end of his life and he assembles the nation of Israel. He has one last message for them. Let's hear what that message is. Joshua says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You see, Joshua stands up before the people, the nation of Israel, and he says this, I don't know what gods you're following right now. Maybe it's the gods of your parents. And you know we all have grown up this way. We all have parents that raised us a certain way. We had certain gods introduced in our lives from an early start. Maybe it had something to do with sports and soccer and things like that. Maybe it was money and and success and achievement and education. I don't know what it was that was put in front of you as you were being raised. But Joshua was saying to, the, to them and to us, look, I know that your parents put gods in front of you. Are those the gods you're going to worship? Or maybe it's the gods of your past. Maybe it's the gods that you've kind of picked up as you've gone along the way and you've been raised and all of a sudden you've found, well, I like this one, I like this, I, like, I don't like that one so much, but I like this. And you've elevated these tools, these good things God has provided and put them on the throne of your heart. Or maybe he's saying it's the God of culture. Maybe these are some of the gods that your culture puts around, some of this dung that the culture puts all around us that we finally said, ooh, that's shiny, I like that. Let's put that on the throne of my heart. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to worship that, whether it's the money, whether it's the success or the entertainment or the pleasure or whatever it is you can fill in the blank with. But we've all come together with these different gods, and Joshua was saying, you have to choose. If following the Lord God's undesirable to you for whatever reason, whether you don't believe it or whether he asks too much of you or whatever the reason, you've got to choose. Make a statement. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Look at what the Israelites and how they responded. It says, Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And then Joshua says to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. What Joshua is saying is he's saying, look, don't tell me you're going to choose God and then turn back around and go back to your other gods. Don't you dare stand here before God today in this church and say, I'm going to follow the Lord God and then walk out of these doors and keep following all the other gods that you've been following all your life. Don't you dare. He's saying if you are going to follow God and you're going to proclaim that, then you better do it. Because God takes that kind of commitment seriously. It's a big deal. We're not playing games here. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua says, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, Joshua said, 
Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. They weren't silent. They answered the question when it was asked. And this morning, as we summarize this series, I'm asking you the same question. Who are you going to follow? You know that some of these gods that we've been talking about over the last five weeks are gods, some of them are gods you struggle with. We all do. It's our nature. We are so easily distracted. But God's saying, I will not stand for being number two or three or number four in your life. I won't even stand for being tied for number one. I insist on being the Lord God of your life. You know why? Because I made you. I'm the only one that's qualified. What have you ever made? What have you ever created? What does your heaven look like? How are you going to save yourself to even get there? There's only one God that's qualified to do any of that. So today you have to choose. I have set up for us a rather lame idol, altar made of cardboard bricks. But today this is just going to be symbolic. On the front pew here, I have some cards. Some of you in your life groups this week were challenged to maybe write a letter to God. Most of you may have not been able to do that. That's okay. This morning I brought these index cards. There's some pens up here. What I'm asking you to do is just symbolically, symbolically this morning as we sing an invitation song, respond. Are there gods that have been ruling your life that you need to write down? Maybe it's the God of, not that one. Those are not gods right there. Those are envelopes. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's the God of pleasure or entertainment. Maybe it's the God of drugs and alcohol or food. Or maybe it's the God of relationships and family or romance. What's your God? Maybe you don't know specifically. You just know it's the God of me. I'm just going to challenge you today, if you really are ready to answer Joshua's call. If, as Joshua says, you must choose. If you really are willing and ready, and don't take this lightly, don't just come up because you think people are watching you. Matter of fact, when we start singing, I'll ask Mark to turn the house lights down so there's at least some level of privacy. I can still see you, but it's okay. But but you're going to... If you're ready to answer that call, write the God on here that you're ready to sacrifice on the altar and get rid of. Throw it away. Walk up here and just throw it away. If you need to spend time praying over it, pray over it. If you need to spend some time thinking on it, think on it. But if you're ready to say, I want the Lord God to be the the king of my life. Maybe you're just renewing that vow, one you made a long time ago. Maybe you're making it for the first time. I want you to come forward today. I want you to take a physical step forward. Write that God down if this is a commitment and an answer to Joshua's call that you're really willing to make. Drop that God in here and symbolically saying, no more. I'm burning it on the altar. I'm making the Lord God the God of my life. 
That's your opportunity. That's your freedom to do that today. It's your choice to make. I love what Joshua says in 24, 23. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's your call. If you need to speak to someone at the end of this invitation today about if you want to have a further conversation about what it means to give your life to the Lord God and let him be the Lord of your life, we will be happy to have that conversation with you after the service is over. Just come forward and stay up here and we'll talk about that. If this is a church, and I know we haven't talked about this recently, but I know some of you went through Discovering FCC. Some of you may have been thinking about it. This is the church family you want to call your home. You want to join this church in membership. Come forward during that time. Stay up here in the front, and we'll talk about that. We'll make that happen. Because, guys, we've got to respond to what we've heard, and we've got to make a choice. Let's not waste any more time. Pray with me. Father, I pray that this morning, as this challenge has been laid out, that we will not waste any more time. That we will not walk out of here pretending like we can continue pushing this choice away, like we can continue ignoring the call that Joshua made, the call that Jesus made, the call that Peter made. On the day of Pentecost, God, the call to say either you're the Lord of our life or something else is. God, I pray no one will leave out of here today without realizing they have made a decision one way or the other. God, move us as we respond in Jesus' name.